Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in, and so what I seek to do is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world, so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. C.S. Lewis was one of the most profound and influential Christian thinkers in the 20th century. Both his fiction and nonfiction books continue to be bestsellers, and believers across the West still frequently credit him as one of their favorites. However, what made C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis? What people and books shaped the mind of this legendary intellectual? My guest on today's show argues that medieval literature played a primary role in forming Lewis's mind. He helps us to see how they impacted Lewis and where we can see their influence in his writing. His name is Jason Baxter, and we discussed his new book, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind. Jason Baxter has his Ph.D. from the University of Notre Dame. He is an Associate Professor of Fine Arts and Humanities at Wyoming Catholic College. He is the author of several books, including The Infinite Beauty of the World, Dante's Encyclopedia and the Names of God, and A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy. Before we dive into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list if you have not done so already. This way you can can get all of our latest content sent directly into your inbox as soon as it drops. Just visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes, clips, and content that we put out directly on the homepage of your app wherever you get this content. If you're really helped by the episodes that we're putting out, we would really appreciate it if you leave us a rating and review. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and write a review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take a minute of your time, and when you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this great conversation that I got to have with Jason Baxter. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. So glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. We were talking a a second ago, uh, just getting to know each other a little bit. It's pretty cold where you are. Tell everybody about where you're at and what you do. Yeah, I'm in the middle of Wyoming in a small town called Lander. Uh, One of the few towns in Wyoming whose whose population is higher than its altitude, uh, just barely. Uh, It's snowing outside. It's six degrees um, but I am a college professor at a small liberal arts college. I teach uh, everything from art history to Homer to Dante. But what I know best is the is the Dante. And that's how I got interested in C.S. Lewis. Obviously, he and I have read all the same books. Well, he's read more, but I'm on his track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you feel a sort of a, a kinship with him that, that naturally led to writing about him. What initially attracted you to the classics and to, uh, and to Dante? Yeah, well, I mean, I read Lewis as a teenager and loved him, um, mainly his nonfiction. I thought it was, I thought it was thoughtful. I thought it was kind of, it was, you know, spiritual nourishment. And it wasn't until, and, and then I started on my graduate career and started reading about Dante. And I started trying to read the books that Dante read to, to get into his mind. as also to try to see what he was doing, um, to try to see what kind of horizons he himself, he was crossing. And then I came across Lewis's scholarly works and I realized the man had beat me to everything except he had read all these things in, in handwritten medieval manuscripts that hadn't been translated or edited in ancient libraries. And so not only had he got there first, but he, he got there with hardly any of the resources which were available to me. And when I recognized that basically Lewis and I had read the same books, then I started rethinking both his nonfiction and his fiction in light of these strange old medieval texts, which we had both read. And all of a sudden, my eyes were open to, uh, in the best possible way, if he, if he can hear me, I don't think he'll be offended, <laughs> of how, how he had plagiarized the Middle Ages, um, you know, not dishonestly, of course, but in an intelligent sort of way of recycling. And he had brought this medieval wisdom and brought it into a modern world, into a technological age, and made it seem all relevant again. 
Yeah. Yeah. So obviously you and Lewis uh, see the medieval period or Middle Ages quite differently than a lot of people today. Uh, right. We have a perception of it that's filled with uh, it, it's we, it's dark and it has true. witches and wizards and torture devices and torture yeah torture devices. Pulp Fiction famously has a line about going medieval on your and I won't scandalize your listeners. Yeah, 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 and uh, and superstition and backwardness, but. Like I said, but you and Lewis have a pretty different idea. Can you contrast for us? What is the difference between our perception of the medieval period and how Lewis right. saw it? Right. Well, I mean, Lewis joked more than once that our own perception of the past is just this big kind of like stew pot of things mixed together. There are like Romans and togas and, you know, Hannibal's elephants and Queen Elizabeth and Shakespeare. And they're all just kind of like blended together. I mean, so to begin with, Lewis has, you know, really sort of precise loads and loads of text. Um, I mean, this is a depressing thought experiment to do. But I think if we took every single minute we've spent watching films, every single minute we've spent watching video games, every single minute we've spent cruising YouTube or or just like, you know, browsing on Google or whatever, and cast that end to reading pages, you got something like Lewis's literary imagination. It's just absolutely massive. I mean, I myself am constantly underlining his books and just impressed with the depth of his reading. But in light of that, Lewis was able to have a perception of the Middle Ages as, it's not superstitious. In fact, it's actually the opposite. It's bookish. It's, it's, it's rational. It's, um, it's trying to categorize and classify. I guess in a, in a way, they are trying to categorize and classify this, this massive oceanic uh, you know, amounts of new information that were coming to them, analogously to how we're trying to sort of, you know, I guess, well, the, appropriate to, to the very name of this, uh, of this podcast, right? How we're trying to filter through these oceans of information. That's how Lewis feels about the Middle Ages, is that it's sort of existing in this ocean of new information and all these possible alternatives to live. There are classical alternatives. Now there are Eastern alternatives, right, as they come into contact with the Arabic-speaking world. There are the old-school Christian alternatives, and they're trying to think about how to filter all these things and build it together. Lewis said, look, we should think of these guys as cathedral builders, right? They're intellectual cathedral builders in which they're trying to take block and block. And first of all, they want to see if it has integrity and sort of purity as building, building materials. And then they're trying to fit it all together into this kind of great cathedral of the mind and of the heart um, and the imagination. That's how we should think of them, according to Lewis. That's a hugely different view than peasants covered in mud beating each other with sticks isn't it i'm thinking of monty python right? yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i think monty python is the main image that comes to people's mind for I'm afraid so. yeah okay so yeah it's funny but... I, and i love i love that uh, the idea of the intellectual cathedral that they were building i think that's a beautiful image and one that we can talk about more uh, as we go along but let's let's sit here for a minute do you think that our misunderstanding of this period, especially this period, because I think that we're this uh, this one, at least in popular imagination, is misunderstood even far greater than the classics, uh, ancient Greece and, and Rome. Yeah. Um, do you think that's a problem of uh, history or a problem of literature? A problem of a, right. a, a illiteracy in the, the the classics of literature, or just in history itself? Right. I think Lewis himself would say it's a little bit of a problem of uh, enlightenment and humanist propaganda. Um, I mean, Lewis often, one of his targets is uh, is Gibbons, right? The 18th century English historian who told the story, which if I, if, you know, when I repeat it, I'm sure your listeners will say, yeah, exactly. That's what I was, you know, taught in public school from the time I was nine, right? But the story goes a little bit. There was this flourishing period of classical civilization, and they were scientific, and they were rational, and they were they were humanistic, and they got as far as they could. And, and then the Christians came, and they messed it all up. And there were mm. Christians and barbarians, and they shattered ancient civilization. But then Copernicus and Galileo and Descartes and Newton came along and rediscovered scientific principles and kind of took off again where the ancients had left off. And then we be, and then as our kind of our sophisticated, enlightened society, which is, of course, moral and progressive, but doesn't really need God or morality anymore. So I think, I think, and Lewis, you know, comments in this really cool seven page um, speech, which you can find easily 
you know, online, I'd encourage your, uh, your readers to, or your listeners to go find it. Um, it's got a Latin title, which is a little intimidating, uh, De Descriptione Temporum. But it's his 1954 inaugural address when he took this chair at Cambridge. Cambridge lured him away from Oxford. And he's kind of a celebrity professor in his day. And Cambridge <laughs> bought him and made this chair just for him. And he thought it was so interesting that the, the dividing line between the Middle Ages and the, the Renaissance was beginning to fade. And so Lewis asked, well, where should we put this line? And he sort of considers all these sort of possible alternatives. But he also deals in that, in that little essay with his own uh, philosophy of history. And yeah, so I think, so I think he thinks that it's a little bit of a piece of, uh, of enlightenment propaganda that we have such a, a low view of it. To the point, and this is uh, so remarkable, Lewis says that even his well-trained Oxford and Cambridge students in the 50s would rehearse the standard line, even though they had read all these gorgeous 14th century texts. Lewis says, look, the reality is, you're, I mean, you read Dante, you read, any, you read these medieval lyrics, you're, you're strolling through a well-ordered garden of formality in terms of their metrical devices, in terms of their rhyme schemes. And these guys are sophisticated. And yet, even his students would repeat the standard line about the Dark Ages, about you know someone struggling ashore from the surging seas of the Middle Ages, despite the fact that in their own reading and study, they had encountered the Middle Ages at its best. I mean, who can read, who can read Dante from start to finish with understanding and have a low view of the Middle Ages? Um, but nevertheless, this, this, this sort of, according to Lewis, this propagandistic enlightenment story, which now I think has been amplified by sort of contemporary atheist progressivism. Just think of someone like Steven Pinker, right, who says that the world's getting better and we're getting less violent. The world's getting better and we're getting less violent. But Steven Pinker can prove this to you because he's he's at Harvard, um, right? Anyway, I mean, things like yeah. that sort of amplify the traditional story to the point that even when we read it ourselves, sitting around in a classroom and encounter it, it's hard to get that story out of our heads. That was that was Lewis's thoughts, at least. Mm. That's so. That's such a good answer, and so interesting to think about. You know, we can test that story against the data, as you pointed out, exactly. without having to even dive that deep into history. We can say, okay, so the Enlightenment story tells us that the Middle Ages were made dark and horrible and backwards uh, because right. of the because of the church because of christianity and right. then we look at the products of that time period like you said right. dante and and so Hospitals, many others universities uh extremely gorgeous poems written in highly mm -hmm. elaborate meters we could go on yeah exactly that's, some of the most beautiful architecture ever that's right. created that's right that's right and say okay so what worldview, if that was the dominant worldview at the time, then that is what was creating all of these things. Right. So just knowing, just seeing the data of, uh, uh, of the, the products of that time period, it sort of disproves that story or should at least throw it into question. Exactly. And, and I think, yeah. you know, for discerning people, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that modernity brings its own particular gifts, that modernity corrects, uh, its own blinds, you know, uh, medieval blind spots. And I think that's how, that's how Lewis felt about the sort of study of history. It's like, you know, when you're driving that spot right behind you is your blind spot, right? You can't see it in the mirrors. In some sense, history is being forced to turn and notice it. Mm. And according to Lewis, modernity has its own blind spots, which can be corrected by being faithful and, I don't know, having a kind of Aeneas-like virtue of piety, right? Mm. You remember, there's a famous scene in, in the Aeneid where Aeneas, great sort of, you know, middle-aged man, carrying his old aging father and taking his son by the hand, sort mm -hmm. of like a fidelity to the future and a fidelity to the past. Mm. Lewis thinks if we bring that kind of sensibility to our reading, and we're open and we have a sense of piety, not necessarily a sense of naive, you know, naivete, mm -hmm. but we're just open to it. We can indeed correct our own blind spots. And I think that's at least not to say that the Middle Ages in some sense could, if it could read into the future, it could correct its own blind spots by taking us seriously. But I think the funny thing about being human is that uh, generally you only want to be good at what you're already good at. And so if your culture has a couple of real distinct virtues, like we really do, and we are so sensitive about certain issues, rightly so, 
we tend to think that we've, um, I mean, if there are, hypothetically speaking, 17 virtues that you need to, to be a successful, flourishing human and a, and, a, and a meaningful Christian, I would say any given age really only preferences or prefer, you know, prefers to have two or three at a time mm. and has disdain for the other 14. And thus, if we have this wide historical period, we see other things which don't come easily to our age, which did come easily to them, even if we've got stuff that they missed. Yeah, those are some profound thoughts. So at the very least, we need to be open to what we can learn from people in the past and some of the most maligned people, which would be the people of the medieval period. Lewis writes about something that uh, he has this term, the medieval model that you talked about in your book or wrote about in your book. Uh, What did Lewis mean by that term, the medieval model? Right. It's not easy. It's, it's, it's so strange that, uh, I mean, (laughs) you got to do, you got to read Lewis on this a couple of times. He writes about this in the discarded image and it's a, it's, it's a collection of his own lectures that he gave to his students He was trying to, um, if I may, microwave his students' brains (laughs) so that they would be ready to go read all these weird old texts. If he could give them that that skeleton, that background information of just how medievals thought and felt about the world and how it made them think about the relationship between my soul and my body, I guess you would use technical terms. If If he could get them up to date on medieval cosmology and medieval psychology, then they could go read these old texts with enjoyment. He thought, so that's what his discarded image is about. Um, but so in it's, the disc- it's sort of like creating a uh, a cheat sheet to get started with the medievals. Is that a, would that be a way to put it? Yeah. Off. Yeah. No, I think that's good. Except it's a really gorgeous, thoughtful, brilliant it's a big icon cheat sheet. of a cheat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. This thing I'm just thinking, just- yeah, I was just thinking of like a guide. You know, something to get that yeah, gets absolutely. you started. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. yeah. Or to again to put it in Lewis's own words, he said he had spent so much time reading ancient text that he felt like he was a, an expat in modernity. And he had become hmm. a naturalized citizen of the Middle Ages. And he wow. jokingly called himself a dinosaur. Um, I said, you better be careful with your specimens because there aren't going to be many more of these things around. And he was right about that. Yeah. But in any case, so so Lewis is so interested in, in how the medievals thought about the world, what you could call their cosmic image, right? Their cosmic background stories. And if you think about it, um, these how we think the world works plays more – has a more important role in how we think about our, our own personal lives than you might think. In our world, think of, think of a film like Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. I think that Christopher Nolan's Interstellar is a great film. And I also think it's almost kind of like a perfect, perfectly captures how we think and feel about the world. Hmm. In light of that, if you go back to medieval space travel, <laughs> which there is, it's called Dante's Comedy, but there are others too. And, and Lewis knew all of these. You can really learn a lot about how, it, how they felt and how they thought about what goodness was like and what their sort of roles of justice were in society. But in essence, it's highly different from us. We live in, we live in a world is what is called um, you know, a mechanized world picture. That is, we think about the world out there as just being a collection of random, inert right? Newton's law of inertia, random inert chunks of molecules, which collide against each other like billiard balls do in pool. And, and thus the world exists out there, just sort of rate, waits as this potential resource for us to strip it, rebuild it. We can do it to ourselves. We can do it to our bodies. We can do it to, to animals. We can do it to our corn. You know, we just rip out, you know, cells and insert other cells. We just make whatever we want because it's just a random passive collection of molecules bumping against each other. Hmm. Lewis points out, though, that for the medievals, that is not the case. The world is very different. The world is more like an icon or like a cathedral or like, you know, or like a sacrament. And he writes about this in his fascinating little uh, sermon called Transposition, which rates in my top three ever Lewis uh, sermons or essays. Transposition, he says, okay, imagine a world before digital recordings or even, you know, mechanical recordings. If you go to some big, huge symphony and there are 400 different instrumentalists, right, playing, and you want to let other people who didn't get to go to the symphony hear it, what do you do? Well, you write a transcription, right? A transcription for a piano. 
But the piano is this kind of imperfect um, attempt to recreate all the complexity, beauty, tempo of the symphony. You could both get at it, some of its harmony and some of its melody, but also imperfectly because you only got one instrument and not flutes and violins and cellos and kettle drums and all that kind of stuff. Lewis said, think about, if you want to know what the medieval cosmic image is like, think about the physical world like the piano transcription of the Great Symphony. Hmm. The Great Symphony is the invisible world of spiritual value, and it's warm, and it's, and, uh, it's joyful, and it's too in an abundance. And it does its best to express itself in the limitations of our space and time and history. But in some sense, everything we see is always trying to point at something which it imperfectly represents because of the limitations of its own capacity. And this is why you have a figure like Aslan at the end of the Narnia series saying, you, uh, you, you're not nearly as happy as I hope to make you. In some sense, for Lewis, the great drama, not only of the universe, of, like the, of the cosmos, but also this is how it relates to the sort of spiritual story of Christianity, is... God wants to make us more happy or as happy as we have the capacity to respond to. And to some sense, our own kind of psychological limitations, our own spiritual limitations are constantly blocking out the levels of depth and the levels of happiness which, for which we are intended for. We ourselves are constantly filtering it out. I had to go back to our, <laughs> our theme, right? Filtering in a bad way. Yeah. Analogously, in some sense, the, uh, the medieval universe is doing its best to hint at that deeper level of reality within the limitations of its own material structure. It makes me think of uh, Peter Berger, who said that in the modern world, we live in a world without windows. And how different uh, the medieval saw the world. It was a world that was filled with uh, beauty and meaning and transcendence. It was a world that was full of windows, and they they and they they would be cathedral windows, beautiful stained yes, glass. Yes, that's right, stained glass right. windows. And yeah, in some sense, you know, yeah, that the the stained glass window is like is like our universe, and that pure light is sort of analogous to the spiritual realities just underneath the surface of everything. Yeah. So if we could dive a little bit deeper into medieval cosmologies, I know this had uh, a great effect on Lewis and, uh, as you talked about before, was a, a significant part of his model. Help us to understand the, the medieval cosmology a little bit more and how it differs, and once again, how it differs from the uh, predominant cosmologies today. Right. Well, I guess the first thing, I mean, everyone knows this, that for the medievals, the earth is at the center of the universe. And which at first seems sort of, you know, seems sort of laughable to us. Um, but what's fascinating is that they think that the planets are sort of spaced out in these harmonic intervals so that in some sense they have the same mathematical proportions that chords do in music. Thus, the universe is literally a symphony. The, the very motion of the planets are, as they say, are sort of plucking chords on a guitar, or they would say a cetera, right? But the sort of plucking chords. Now, the fascinating thing, according to the medievals, is that is that this sort of like great uplifting, you know, symphony we've become deaf to um, due to overexposure. The medievals say it would be like if you were born uh, next to a waterfall and lived there your whole life. At some point, you just sort of tune out the raucous noise of the falling water. Analogously, we become deaf to the, the great cosmic symphony. And so for the medievals, this is the whole point of art. And this is why this is why their cathedrals, this is why their poetry, and this is why even their music, right? If you go listen, not just to Gregorian chant, but so-called polyphony, like the Notre Dame school, um, you, this stuff is highly mathematical. What they're trying to do, seemingly, and and this this sort of this sort of thing pervades, you know, almost maybe up to sort of someone like Vivaldi, right? What they're seemingly trying to do is recreate the harmonic structures which are out there in the cosmos, but in my own little icon of art, so that I can retune the soul and the ear, um, and have this kind of. I mean, so they explain it this: if you've 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 encountered uh, 
a work of an artistic work or a symphony or uh, you know a painting of great beauty, the medievals would say, "Well, obviously, <laughs> your soul is being retuned to this cosmos." For us, on the other hand, because there's no meaning out there, because all the, the meaning is here and it's what I bring to it and how I wish to see it, the artist has to be true to himself, expressing his or her own authenticity. And you can't criticize it because whatever that artist says is just being true to his or herself, right? But for the medievals, in some sense, the heart was better in tune with the, with the exterior, and the goal of education, the goal of art, um, I guess the goal of <laughs> the goal of preaching would be to retune the heart to the world, to have that kind of uplift in which your best self began to long for a sense of fullness, um, which had been, I don't know, dormant within you, which had been sleeping. And again, this is this is what he writes about in, uh, in everyone's favorite sermon by Lewis, The Weight of Glory. So if you were to take someone from uh, the Middle Ages, let's say we could take Dante and put him in a time machine, bring him here to 2022 and, <laughs> and show him that the earth is, in fact, not in the center, uh, that the, earth, the, the, the sun is at yeah. the center and that uh, they're not all mathematically distanced. And, and so on, right. would him or someone else from this period say, oh, well, then my cosmology has been disproved. It's wrong. Or would they say, no, we're not seeing it right? How, how, how do you think that yeah, would cool respond to, to our cosmologies? Well, he obviously Dante would instantly become an atheist and uh, a progressive and join the Communist Party. And no, um, I, so I'm really interested in this question. And in some of my you know, non, non-academic writing, but sort of popular writing. I've tried to address this, this question. And the way I put it is, does the medieval model have any possible value for moderns? Because what I'm not about is ditching contemporary science um, or I know trying to pretend that we don't live in the world that we live in. And even though I joke about it, I, I love being in 2022 despite all of its weirdness. And uh, <laughs> I guess one could devote whole podcast to, to that. Um, we don't have to do that today. But um, yeah, so I think, here's what I think would happen. And this is something that I'm really interested in. I think the medievals would be, would after they sort of adjusted, would be delighted. And they would recognize that they made some mistakes. But I don't think that the the mistakes in the facts that they made would necessarily change the big story that they wanted to tell about the cosmos. And so if you said, oh, Dante, look, I mean, the, the, the earth is not at the center of the universe. In fact, we're not exactly sure there is a center. I think he would just laugh and say, of course, of course. And then he would say, well, look, the whole point of my, of my story in the comedy is that we get less and less sort of human-centered. And in hell, you find these people who basically repeat the same lines about their little, their little lives. They love one thing and they love one thing only. And when Dante meets them in hell, they just repeat it. But you kind of get the impression that 25 minutes later when another tourist to hell comes along, they're, gonna, they're like, it's a wax museum. They repeat the same story. But they're so locked in on the, themselves. They love one thing and one thing only. But this whole, whole sort of movement into this like sort of heavenly journey to, up into Paradiso, into paradise, is that you encounter larger and larger realities in which people are more and more comfortable with a good diversity, with a good variety, with a sort of – they have awe and are sort of dazzled by the number of things which are beautiful in this world. And so I think if we pointed out to Dante, hey, Dante, there are, now there are black holes. And guess what? The universe is not static. It's actually accelerating. And there are gamma rays and X-rays. And uh, there are all these things you didn't know about, right? There's, there's Stephen Hawking's right? radiation and all these things. Mm -hmm. I think he would just laugh and say, of course there is, right? As I mean, again, Lewis and contemplating this in another uh, place, I think it's the universe and dogma. Is that right? basically uh, makes a very similar point. And this is what one of my chapters about sort of Lewis on science is about. 
what a cool overlap there is between, surprisingly, right, between medieval science and contemporary science. Look, for the medievals, the world was weird in the best possible way. Stranger things, man, right? It's penetrated by forces and spirits and powers and things which um, of all different types and varieties. Well, contemporary science is now kind of like that as well in our post-Newtonian age. So I yeah. think with a, I think Dante would go enroll himself in a good undergraduate program in physics, and uh, once he got caught up on his calculus and you know and um, and his contemporary astrophysics and quantum, he would say, "This is kind of what I was trying to say, anyway, guys." Mm. Yeah, yeah, because I think that one of the reasons that, and this goes back to the Enlightenment story that we were talking about earlier, one of the reasons that someone today might, uh, especially someone who's more, if you want to say it, naturalistic. Um, might look down on people from this period is because they hear that cosmological story and they mm-hmm. say, Oh, how foolish these pre-scientific right. people, they just right. didn't know any better. Right. Uh, but, but I think that really just what that shows is like, okay, no, I think we don't get it. I think that what they were trying to say about the world and the way that it's ordered is going deeper than just astronomy. Yes. Right. Yes. It's it's, it, it's yes. deeper. It's 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 right. speaking to the uh, the the transcendent order and the meaningfulness uh, that right. that undergirds truth and beauty, right? And goodness, right? Right. And I I just I I think one of the sort of exciting things that we get to do in our generation is to ask this very question about whether or not we can speak about the universe iconically. In which case, what we're doing is saying, okay, yeah, some of the details have changed. Some of the facts have changed. But this is, this is again, Lewis's point too. This is at the end of the discarded image. He said, look, I know my readers have just been itching to say something to me. Hey, Lewis, I'm really glad that you're so excited about, you know, about the, the medieval cosmic image. But it wasn't true. You know that, right? And Lewis says, well, modern science is a funny thing. True is a funny thing in science um, because what we mean by true is in, in contemporary scientific thought is modeling, it's paradigm creating. We do a series of empirical experiments, right? We do a series of tests. We do a series of correlations. We find a series of patterns. And we think that's suggestive of the reality behind it. But we're always using models. And hence, when, when we talk about the medieval model, Lewis thought that the, again, they had already sort of beat us, beat us there. I just, I think your, I think your, your listeners and watchers might really enjoy this one. At the beginning of my chapter eight, modern science and medieval myth, I have a little dialogue um, that Lewis wrote between an atheist and a Christian. Mm-hmm. And the atheist says, um, you see, the real objection goes far deeper. The whole picture of the universe, which science had given us, makes it such rot to believe that the power at the back of it all could be interested, interested in us tiny little creatures crawling about on an unimportant planet. It was also obviously invented by people who believed in a flat earth with the stars only a mile or two away. That's what the atheist says. The Christian says, who I think is Lewis, when did people believe that? Atheist. Why? All those old Christian chaps you're always talking about did. I mean, Boethius and Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Dante. Christian. Sorry, said I, but this is one of the few subjects I do know something about. I reached out my hand to a bookshelf. You see this book, I said, and I pulled out Ptolemy's Almagest. Just read this, I said. Atheist. The earth, read out my friend hesitating a bit as he translated the Latin, the earth in relation to the distance of the fixed stars has no appreciable size and must be treated as a mathematical point. There was another short silence. Then the atheist says, did they really know that then? (laughs) Right. That's my favorite line. They really knew that then? Exactly. These guys are more sophisticated than we know. And I mean, just a one little micro example. Look, no one ever believed in a flat earth. No one ever. Like you read all the ancients, Dante doesn't believe in a flat earth. Ptolemy, you know, writing uh, in the ancient world doesn't, I mean, in the sixth century, people are talking about, uh, you know, like these are the sorts of things which we moderns have told about the ancients, which make them look stupid. And in some sense, sort of justify our desire to untether ourselves from any of their limitations. Yeah. 
Yeah, but weren't we taught that uh, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 to prove that the earth isn't flat because people thought that he was, if he sailed out into the Atlantic, he would fall off the edge of the earth? Yeah. You know, I feel like I remember that's what I was taught. I, I was too. Up. And so yeah. I was, I've been surprised to discover in 500 BC, Greek scientists proving that earth is spherical. Yeah. <laughs> it was really irritating. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, what are some of the ways that we can see this medieval cosmology coming through in Lewis's writings? Yeah, great question. Um, I think he constantly wants to surprise us and draw us out of the smallness of ourselves. What an important theme this is, right? Think screw tape letters. If you can get your human subject, your human victim, to obsessively meditate on himself, then there will be no chance that the bigger, wider, more surprising, more fiery, more beautiful world can get into him. I think Lewis thought that, that moderns were essentially narcissistic, right? Precisely because we don't believe the world out there has anything to tell us right? Because it's just a bunch of inert chunks of atoms colliding and interacting in physical and chemical uh, processes, then the meaning is here. And so that's some kind of constantly like like Dostoevsky's Raskolnikov, right? And his little narrow attic with his low roof, just sort of obsessively meditating about myself and my own worries and so forth. Mm -hmm. Lewis thinks that's brilliant. That's brilliant from, from, from a diabolical perspective. So I think in a way, just, you know, we talked earlier about that kind of retuning aspect, opening up those horizons, being surprised with other deeper, bigger, and different types of love. Um, that in some sense, this is the, this is the ethical, um, moral, and even sort of artistic and aesthetic in terms of beauty aspect that the medievals could really teach us is that we get sort of stuck in these kind of like narrow, uh, self-affirming, rational loops, whereas the medievals were constantly trying to open up to these larger uh, worlds. They, they wanted to harmonize themselves into a bigger political community and even into a bigger sort of cosmos, whereas we're, uh, we're sort of this kind of uh, narcissistically inward. I think that's one kind of mm. huge thing. I mean, so if you think about the end of The Great Divorce, um, the big reveal – George McDonald mm -hmm. gets down on his hands and he's like, okay, where was that? And he finds this tiny little crack. Like, I think hell's there. Like in some sense that the selfishness is so microscopically small. We're so pusillanimously small. Um, and the medieval imagination is constantly trying to break that open, draw out the individual into the harmonic symphony of the whole. And I think that's one of the great sort of lessons that Lewis imitates in his own uh, fictional writing. Well, think about further up and further in, thinking about um, the very end of the world and the, and the voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? The beautiful thing is, I think, is that for Lewis, it's not Buddhism. You don't lose yourself into a kind of nirvana of consciousness, but you do lose yourself and something oceanically huge without losing your individuality. Mm -hmm. In other words, you get harmonized into a bigger symphony without losing your individuality. So it's not Buddhism and it's not totalitarianism, but if I can put it in this weird way, it has some of the benefits of those types of thought systems without losing the beauty of the particularity, the irrepeatability of me and you, my thisness. I think Lewis was really tuned into that. And his own sort of writing, his own spiritual work, as well as his own fiction, I think it's constantly um, being moved and animated by that really interesting medieval impulse. Well, yeah. And how important is that message for today and that to, this calling outside of yourself? Because I think the if people were narcissistic whenever Lewis was writing, then that has only accelerated and amplified today. And I think that so much of our modern life supports that and, and, and catalyzes it, such as social media. Um, and so, yeah, it'd be great for us to recover or remember some of the lessons that Lewis wanted us to learn. Who would be uh, 
whether it's people or works, what would be some of the primary um, things that you appoint to in the medieval period that really shaped Lewis? Thinkers or right. literary works? What would be like, you know, your the top three, top five that uh, impacted him? Oh, man, that's a fun question. Um, well, I think you top one, top two are easy. Boethius and Dante. And I have... Uh, I have a chapter on Dante's influence on Lewis and I have a chapter on Boethius's influence on Lewis. In fact, I go so far as to say that Lewis increasingly thought of himself as a modern British Boethius. That is, Boethius is living, um, dies in the 520s AD. And so he lives through this extraordinary period of the so-called you know, barbaric invasion, in which Theodoric, the Ostrogothic king, is taking over the handles of Roman government. And Boethius is a Greek reader um, and is thus comes under suspicion from Theodoric, who thinks that he might be colluding with the Byzantines to overthrow him, and thus unjustly seemingly imprisons him and executes him in a brutal, awful way. Boethius had wanted to translate all of Aristotle into Latin and all of Plato into Latin, and he wanted to translate every single a treatise on every single one of the liberal arts into Latin. And then he wanted to write these huge works in which he justified Plato and Aristotle, like think Raphael's school of Athens, right? And he wanted to, and he wanted to reconcile theology and humanistic studies. This was Boethius's life goal, all of which got caught short. And when he was executed and he wrote one little book, well, he wrote a couple others, but he wrote one little book, The Consolation of Philosophy, in which he tried to get that life goal into a single text and preserve as much as he could. Um, and a world which was just about to lose Greek for a thousand years. He wanted to try to bring the best. I think Lewis thought of himself like that. He constantly refers to people in the 20th century as modern barbarians who were cut off from the past and proud of it. They didn't think the past had anything to teach him anymore. Why would you waste your time reading Virgil or Seneca? Right. In fact, I'm sure some of your your listeners and watchers, if they've studied philosophy or the liberal arts or theology, will inevitably get you know <laughs> get the question from their uncle Bert. And I'm convinced everyone has an uncle Bert. What are you doing that for? Like, what is that for? I mean, is that advertising? Is that engineering? Right. We we don't care about the past as a culture, right? And we're cut off from it and proud of it. And Lewis thought that was a direct point of similarity between Boethius's age and our age. And thus, if we live in a new age of barbarism. Lewis was the new Boethius, translating. As he said, you have to vernacularize every, sing, every single theological statement you make. And then another point, he said, I think we're going to have to make pagans again before we can make real Christians, right? Just like Boethius sort of preserves the general tradition from Virgil and Seneca and, you know, and Homer and Plato and just wanted to sort of pass on to the extent he could this world picture. I think Lewis thought of himself as translating that Think of his, and now think of his fiction as his own form of, in some sense, translated ancient um, ancient works. So anyway, so Boethius is huge. Dante is really important. I think there's a good bit of Augustine, um, uh, the Confessions, and Lewis, particularly in these extraordinary kind of conversion scenes. Um, think of until we have faces. This kind of uh, this extraordinary moment of unveiling, um, in which. Orwell has to let herself be seen and all of her flaws and warts and deformities. There's something extraordinary hard about that idea of letting yourself be seen and all of your imperfections. I think that's a very Augustinian insight from the confessions. So Dante, Boethius, Augustine, um, and then he loved the the little mystical text called the cloud of unknowing and i think he got a good bit from medieval practices of reading scripture lexia divina um and so that if you read one of his late works letters to malcolm chiefly on prayer as he sort of coaches you know malcolm in engaging in this kind of prayerful biblical um, study, which he calls festooning. Mm -hmm. I, I, I try to show in my book that in the, again, in the best possible way, this is straight up plagiarism from, from Lexio Divina of the middle ages, or to put it in a less, with, with a, in a way with less sort of, you know, negative connotation 
this is an extraordinary moment of recycling. And it's Lewis rescued something which was precious and remodernized it. This kind of prayerful, meditative. I mean, think, I mean, the medievals, just like in, 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 um, in the biblical world, right? You know, Ezekiel is given a scroll and, and the Lord says, eat it, right? I mean, why off a picture of the scroll? They said like, it was sweet into my mouth. But in some sense, if we thought about reading like the process of chewing until the flavor is released, until the until it sort of becomes a part of my actually sort of, you know, organic system. Lewis, I think, plays around with that idea too. So there you go. There are yeah. five, five quick ones. Very good. Uh, what about one of his most popular works, especially of his uh, fiction, would be the Narnia series. Where do we see his medieval influences come through in Narnia? I think, and this is my, my chapter on medieval mysticism, I think we chiefly, well, I'll just give two quick examples. We see them in, in Lucy. <laughs> Lucy's a medieval mystic <laughs> in which um, um, as they, she's the one who has a kind of faith, which is constantly, constantly willing to be surprised, constantly willing to love with a love, which is so fierce that it makes rationality seem like the servant of love. Um, or another cool example, I think, is, look, if, if your readers, listeners have got to Dante's Paradiso, which not many people have, there was an article a couple of years ago in Slate, which said, does anyone read Dante's Paradiso? Uh, like seven people, right? <laughs> Louis, Louis being one of them, but... In Dante's Paradiso, part of the reason it's so difficult is that Dante himself is trying to imagine this world in which light is almost kind of, by looking at it, is visibly nourishing to the soul. Well, you think a little bit about Lewis and uh, the end of the the very end of the world and Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, they just they he, Lewis says that the water was like light, liquid light. And they would reach down with their buckets and drink a glass and they'd be filled with this kind of like radioactive joy. And they didn't talk all that much. They just sort of looked at each other with very knowing eyes. And they had this kind of communion, which had begun to sort of take place in which a joy, which, which would be vulgarized if you talked it out. It was too deep for words. That's a moment, I think, of medieval mysticism, brilliantly recycled. In Lewis. Yeah, that's great. Um, what do you hope to leave readers with whenever they read your book or even listeners to this podcast? What do you hope to leave them with and uh, take away from the book? I think we all admire Lewis a lot because of his depth, because he's the sort of man that you would want to go to if you needed if you needed counsel on something, and we all want to be deep, we all want to be the sort of person that if our friends come to us, we have something to say, right? But I think maybe, so what I want to, I think that's what we sort of begin with in our admiration of Lewis. So I guess if I could leave my readers with something, it would be a healthy zeal for putting in the reps to acquire that depth. And Lewis being a, great scholar, a great student who, you know, probably spent, I don't know, we can't do this for lots of reasons, but, you know, eight, nine hours a day, maybe more reading and studying and looking up old words and dictionaries and underlining things with his pencil and committing them to memory and refusing to allow his memory to be wimpy and flaccid, right? Just hold it in there. I think sort of presents this kind of, this great image of the necessary labor of study which can help us get to the level of depth. And I think a lot of us kind of um, are sort of turned off by, you know, the professorial and the pedantic and right. Because we, because we just think it's just, but it's not just an acquisition of facts, right. But rather it's an accumulation of facts in order to be able to, um, to do, to have this vision of deeper things. I think, so Lewis says, and this is the, the quotation that I begin the whole book with. It is a good rule after reading a new book, never to allow yourself another new one 
till you have read an old one in between. The one-to-one balanced diet of new books and old books. Why? Because the new books will help you with a sense of urgency and with a sense of prudence, a sense of how to work out my life, uh, how to work out the gospel in this particular historical era. But the old books will help you check your blind spots and make sure that you're faithful to the acquisition of that depth. Yeah, that's great. It's been a lot of fun talking to you about this book and about Lewis and uh, the medieval writers and so on. Uh, Before we go, do you want to tell everybody about how they can uh, get in touch with you or uh, follow more of your work, learn uh, about what you do or anything else that you'd like to plug? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, Yes, my book will be available on Amazon in mid-March. However, if you're... Your listeners and readers want to go vinyl, go indie. They can go to my website, jasonmbaxter.com, jasonmbaxter.com. They can see some of the other things I've written, some of my popular articles I have links to. Um, But I'm also, um, there are also signed copies available. Um, Again, trying to create that vinyl vibe. If you prefer to, you know, support trillionaire companies, they've got to eat too. That's fine with me. Um, Or you can go to, you can go to my website. Awesome. I'll have your website and uh, all that linked in the show notes. So you guys who are watching or listening, just go to to the link to the show notes below. And then you can find uh, Jason's book there and uh, and get your copy, uh, whether that be through uh, Amazon or I'll also have his website linked so you can get it direct from him if you prefer. Uh, And then I'll have the couple of uh, other resources or works that we mentioned in there, including the resources of the show notes below. So you'll be able to find that if you're interested in uh, following up any more on those uh those works but jason i just want to thank you once again for joining us i really enjoyed this conversation it was uh enlightening inspiring and uh i hope that a lot of people uh pick up your book and you know um break free from the world without windows into one that's more beautiful and filled with meaning so thanks for your time it's been a lot of fun thanks thanks for listening I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.